The only way to surf is to get out on that board in the ocean and be there when the wave hits and then paddle like crazy and hope it works out. And if it doesn't, try again. Hello, welcome to On The Edge, a podcast all about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Howard, and in each episode we talk with someone who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In today's conversation, I connected with Diraj Mukherjee. Diraj is co-founder of Shazam, the music recognition app, which was founded 20 years ago during the dot-com boom, and they surfed multiple crises over the years before finally being acquired 18 years later by Apple for a reported $400 million. He is now an active angel investor focused on emerging technologies that do good in the world. I first met and worked with Diraj about seven years ago, and we reconnected recently when he posted an interesting blog post called Designing for Uncertainty about the importance of agility in finding opportunities for innovation when faced with a crisis such as the current pandemic. So I started out by asking him, what opportunities has the current COVID crisis brought to you? Enjoy. The COVID crisis hasn't really brought me any opportunities, except that we got a lockdown puppy. And uh, so that's (laughs) kept me happy. And and actually, I've never had a dog before. And taking the dog out for a walk is, is a good way to get some fresh air. Then you start noticing things differently about you know, nature and, you know, observing things in a different way. And then you bump into other people with dogs and you start having random conversations and they go off in interesting directions. And uh, so suddenly I found myself a member of this tribe, which I hadn't applied for membership to, which is fellow dog owners. And what (laughs) struck me, I I lived in the US for, for many years and people tend to be outgoing and friendly and you greet strangers, which is not uh, exactly the norm in in England. However, mm-hmm. if you've got a dog, then all the bets are off. So you converse in different ways, you you chat, and then you know it helps you break the ice. And partly with people I, I, I knew from the past, partly with complete strangers. Mm-hmm. And I've ended up having conversations about investing in the new, new thing, or mm-hmm exchanging ideas about you know uh, places to visit and these sort of connections which which come from you know a, an uncommon situation i guess mm. and then the other thing which i find is that i often talk about you know seeing seeing the world through my kids eyes and their reality is very different from mine so the kinds of problems they're trying to solve and uh, their friendship groups and the social media and so forth and i find it quite inspiring and helpful to see the world through their eyes now I've started looking at the world through the dog's eyes. Uh, so dog has a much simpler life. Charlie is his name. And he's not involved with social media, for instance. But <laughs> um, he's very sociable. He likes meeting other dogs. He gets plenty of sleep. Uh, he likes his exercise and fresh air, healthy living. He doesn't like cats. You know, sometimes we make our lives quite complicated trying to mm. uh, you know, get too busy. And then we've got to do yoga so we can find some balance. Charlie has a much more streamlined view of life. Mm. And it's something which I've you know, been learning from. Yeah, I love that. I mean, uh, the, the dog experience reminds me 
of some work I saw years ago, an organizational sort of psychologist, I think, um, mm -hmm. called Karen Stevenson, was analyzing mergers and acquisitions. And I don't know if you've been involved in any of those in your time, but no. um, they did some social network analysis inside two different companies kind of before they merged and then sort of during and, and after the merger. And they discovered this weird network of people within the organization who had uh, were more innovative, were more productive, had better access to kind of knowledge and ideas and just generally made stuff happen in the organization. And they couldn't, for the life of them, figure out what connected these people until mm -hmm. some bright spark realized that, um, yeah. that they were all smokers. And so yeah. they were meeting up outside the building however many times a day to smoke their cigarettes. And they were from all different parts of the business, all different sort of levels of the business. And they would share information, which led to conversations which otherwise wouldn't have happened. And, and so maybe owning a dog and smoking <laughs> in different ways is good for you, maybe not for your health in terms of the smoking, but in, in other ways, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I've been listening to podcasts, for instance, when I'm out and about and it you mm. know developed perspectives in terms of, you know, what the future has in store or, you know, what I see as some of the, the pressing issues at the moment. And that was mm. not part of my routine at all. Mm. So it sounds perhaps trivial. And I am a big believer in rhythm and, and routine. But when you break that, suddenly mm. you get new perspectives, which you wouldn't have naturally discovered. Yeah, serendipity and community through a little bit of randomness and enforced lockdown as well. I'd love to hear about what you're doing in the future, but uh, mm. but maybe we can start with a little mm. bit of your past. So sure. I first met you whenever it was six or seven years ago, but I was mm -hmm. uh, way back when blown away the very first time I saw and used Shazam, which okay. of course uh, is your is your thing. So I'd love to hear a little bit about the story. And in particular, given where we started thinking about crisis and opportunity, you launched mm -hmm. that, didn't you? Just around the time of the dot-com boom. Uh, and it's been quite a journey since then. So uh, I don't know if in a nutshell, you can share a little bit of that story, but also reflections about designing for uncertainty and navigating crisis and opportunity. Absolutely. No, it was just a bandwagon which I jumped on when when the internet was first starting up in Silicon Valley in the late 90s. I, I saw everyone getting swept up in this wave and I thought, hey, why not me? So uh, that's how my business partners and I ended up becoming entrepreneurs because we just, it seemed to be the cool thing to do at the time. You know, when we came up with the idea for Shazam, it was simply because we were so clueless about music that we desperately needed help. Our timing was terrible. About three or four months after we started, the internet boom turned into a, a gigantic bust. We ended up stranded without a job with this startup in some of the messiest conditions in history. And uh, we managed to make our way out of that bust. And we were doing reasonably well until 2008, when the great uh, financial crisis, uh, which again, you know, set us back uh, several years in terms of are finding an exit for the business. So it took us 18 years from, from start to finish. And I'm wow. glad to say that there was a happy ending in the sense that uh, Apple bought, uh, bought Shazam in 2018. But I guess I learned the hard way that our plans more or less counted for nothing because the ups and downs of the market and external factors dramatically outweighed anything that we could do. So for many, many years, we were just paddling in a little raft in this uh, turbulent ocean, just trying to stay afloat and not capsize. And I guess I learned the hard way that uh, things don't always go to plan. Yeah. What can we learn from that experience? So I'm delighted for you that you've found a 
a successful exit after so many years. But, you know, uh, lots of people, uh, you know, struggle with that. I'm kind of curious, you talked about your children earlier. Mm. Would you advise them to be entrepreneurs or would you kind of advise them against it? Sure. So so I call myself a recovering entrepreneur. People <laughs> sometimes ask me if I do another startup and I say, never, look at me. I try to appreciate what I got from my entrepreneurial experience, which frankly was the relationships, you know, the friendships with my co-founders and with the early employees, the stories that we have to share, the, the shared experiences of going through some really hard times, as well as the, the bloody mindedness to try to uh, stay afloat, as I, as I mentioned before. And those are things which I think I kind of carry forward with me. And it's a, it's a, such a pleasure that, you know, I've stayed friends with so many people over all those years. If I look forward in terms of lessons learned, I try to connect now with like-minded people, not necessarily like-minded people, you know, my age, but also uh, young people who are setting out to change the world, you know, uh, young people who reject the capitalist model of building companies and trying to accumulate great wealth, which is something which I'm not a big uh, believer in myself. And people who are activists, perhaps, and and have a cause and want to change the world in a in a completely different way. So mm. I feel a certain amount of kinship mm. with both entrepreneurs as well as I guess more broadly change makers. No, well, that's refreshing to hear that activist spirit, given the journey that you've been on. But so, w- what can we take though from the fact that you said earlier that you know your plans were kind of worth nothing, and it, you know you were overtaken by events, uh, which is often the way in politics and in life and in business you know what, what are your thoughts about planning if if events overtake you as, as it sounds like they did more than once in Shazam mm-hmm. how do you survive that how do you navigate that and how do you maintain good relationships as well which is I think what you ultimately said was important to you it's a tricky one because I'm Hindu and one of the stereotypes about Hindus is that they, they tend to be fatalist and and that can be <laughs> interpreted as you just lie down and wait for stuff to happen but that actually is not right I think a bit more is you put yourself into a situation and then you see what what happens next and you mm-hmm. don't try to manage your destiny that would be my my takeaway is i try very hard to be in the right place at the right time not knowing what the right place or the right time is but if i find myself there then i try to go with the flow and i guess the best analogy i can uh, come up with is it's it's a little bit like surfing you know i i took a surfing lesson once in in australia it was uh, it was a disaster so the instructor said make sure you're on your board and when that wave comes catch it and I was like, yeah, but, but how? Like, surely <laughs> there's more to it than that. <laughs> but that's the best you could do. So I guess that, uh, you know, if you, if you say the only way to surf is to get out on that board in the ocean and be there when the wave hits and then paddle like crazy and hope it works out. And if it doesn't, try again. I'm, I'm a terrible surfer, but I do enjoy it as well. And it, it does require patience, at least when you're not very good at it, like I am, to, to keep yeah. on going, keep on trying. And you you know, you know try and you miss a wave and you go again. Yeah. And it's exhausting, but there's nothing quite like then actually finally you know, catching a nice wave. And all it really needs is one to bring you into the shore. And then that's been made it all worth it uh, for me. Exactly. But so how do you know that you're in the right place in the right time? Um, or, you know, what, what do you look for? So obviously when you're surfing, it's quite easy. Yeah. It's it's the wave and it's the board. And it, mm-hmm. But when it comes to Shazam or, you know, the things mm-hmm. you've done since then, what insights do you have about either navigating your way to that right place or right time mm-hmm. or no, knowing that you found it once you're there? Sure. I think it's a 
peculiar kind of instinct i guess i can't describe it any other way mm-hmm. and it's <clears throat> joining together you know the dots from things you read about or the things you sense and just thinking about the the problems one's trying to solve and and this is where i find the the dog social network also comes in handy and, and you start hearing it from other people let's be specific so i met someone walking his dog who is the finance director for extinction rebellion he had given up his job in the city to uh, you know throw himself into this new career he's got a couple of kids but he felt really strongly that this is what he wanted to contribute to he go ha huh. that's interesting you know it mm. forms a point of a of a trend i had the great privilege of uh, hearing al gore speak about 10 years ago talking about the climate crisis and at the time i felt almost a sense of panic it was almost mm. overwhelming and now i read bill gates's book uh, how to avoid a climate disaster he didn't mm. set out to be a climate uh, expert he just ended up there through his work at the foundation mm. and so by piecing little uh data points uh together i start to get feel for what are the issues which seem to be you know shaping the future and uh to say that the climate crisis is an important issue is not some kind of brilliant insight uh but it is remarkable how so many different people from so many different fields are converging on uh this topic so Mark Carney former governor of the Bank of England did a brilliant series of talks which i think you may have told me about actually mm. and i i listened to them over the, over the last week or so and i guess that uh, the times when completely wrong and barking up the wrong tree but uh, there are other times where these patterns coalesce and you can see a picture and you say aha i think this is the the thing to 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 get involved with No I like that and I think I do that as well. I've kind of got a sort of unofficial rule that if if I hear about a new trend or like even if it's just a film or a piece of music I kind of ignore the first couple of recommendations just because you haven't got time to read all those books and watch all those films or whatever it might be but you know if mm-hmm. if three or four people sort of independently without sort of confer- as far as you're aware conferring maybe recommend mm-hmm. a book or a film then then that would suggest that it's worth paying attention to that so it's just yeah pattern yeah. spotting paying attention and listening asking yeah so I don't know if you had a exit in mind with Shazam that you were mm-hmm. looking to, you know, maybe sell it to Apple or somebody like Apple, mm-hmm. uh, you know, back when you founded the company or in the early years of the company mm-hmm. or with the climate crisis, you know, there's some very tangible targets around getting, you know, uh global temperature down to uh, you know, 1.5 degrees warming or or what have you. But in your blog post that I that I that sort of triggered me to get back in touch with you recently, you you mm-hmm. quoted Tim Ferriss who talks about learning is like driving at night in the fog which is mm-hmm. perfectly doable mm-hmm. um, but you can't see you know uh, you can only see as far as the headlights and i think mm-hmm. it, it is doable if you know where you're trying to get to and maybe mm-hmm. you've got a gps or you've got a map or you know the the street layout but if you don't know where you're trying to get to if you don't know what the exit is for your business or what mm-hmm. the the target is for our planet what do you do then or do you have experiences that where you've felt like you don't know where you're driving and you're in the fog and you know what what do you do in that situation no that's exactly right i think that you know one can have a a view in mind a plan you tr- i'm trying to get from a to b but mm. inevitably the real world is you you end up taking a different trajectory that's okay there are other times when you have you know absolute dead ends or you might you might be going in circles and i think that could be frustrating or it could feel like it's you know meaningless but uh, i actually believe that one can learn a lot from those missteps and and those dead ends as well mm-hmm. so i'm not saying that you know it's it's productive and i think that 
there's many things where uh, taking uh, one step forward, uh, two steps back is is not desirable. And unfortunately, uh, with the with the climate crisis, for instance, there've been some people we're talking for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, and mm. and it feels like we got to an inflection point perhaps in, in 2019, and that's regrettable. What I am saying is that when you have lots of people and lots of focus and lots of attention, and then actually there's a, a collective progress, even though many of those might uh, head off in in the wrong direction. So I asked you earlier, how do you know when you're in the right place at the right time? So I guess the opposite of that is how do you know that you've reached a dead end and it's time to turn back and join the pack again? That's a really good question. I think that I've had several setbacks in my both professional career and then, you know, certain things I might have got excited about. So give an example. So I I was very excited about the potential for location-based services. Mm -hmm. And I found it hasn't really gone anywhere. We don't use location awareness nearly as much as I would have imagined. What's another one which I'm excited about at the moment is like augmented reality, for instance. Mm -hmm. I've been talking about it for two, three, four years, but I don't feel like it's made any meaningful improvement in my life today. It might do, or it might not. And the good news is that I go really easy on myself. If I hmm. turns out I'm right, I can say I've been talking about it for you. If it doesn't, I just ignore it and just move on. Uh, I think that's the the nature of the beast in innovation in general uh, is that one has lots of ideas and you know one gets excited about a new technology or you know new opportunities and then three quarters of them you know don't work out. But one if you just dust dust yourself off and stick with the things which seem to be picking up momentum, then uh, I think one can look back and say that was good enough. Another thing you talked about in that Designing for Uncertainty post uh, was around organizational structures uh, that should be or are constructed to be temporary rather than permanent and I'm fascinated in that what you said there you know this whole gig economy trend towards the gig economy is gets a bad press for good reason but it seems to be the way the world is moving or at least a large proportion of the world so yeah I was just kind of curious about your experiences around temporary and permanent structures, Guess how to manage that, how to navigate that? Sure. I mean, my father, for instance, he worked for Air India, the airline, for his mm-hmm. whole career. So he moved up the hierarchy in a sort of a structured way. Yeah. Um, and that was the, the model at the time. In my career, I've changed jobs every two or three years. So there's been no long-term loyalty to, to one organization. Yeah. But Exazam was a is a good example. So we had employees we went to started off with a handful and then we went up to the hundreds but there still is this you know one company one employee relationship and if it goes bust then uh, you know it's hard on on people who uh, lose their jobs through perhaps no fault of this but uh, the organizational structure which i lean towards nowadays is much more flexible which is bringing people together who have uh, the right skills and the right energy to solve a problem. And I think that for me, the two determinants of that are one is quality, which is, is this person motivated? Are they passionate? Are they knowledgeable? Are they you know hardworking? And then the second is trust. I mean, can you work well together? Do you rely on each other's output? You might have differences of opinion. You might have complementary skills, but you fundamentally trust that you'll work well together. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's I think of it as a, as a distributed uh, organization of 
autonomous, you know, individuals. And mm. sounds like liminal might be, might be very much of, of that. And uh, I think those models offer flexibility on both sides and we might see more of them in the future as well. Well, yeah, depending on who you believe, some of the statistics are quite remarkable that, you know, half of the workforce in the US be kind of freelance or independent in, in you know, in the next decade or so. So, mm-hmm. you know, that poses big challenges, but also big opportunities as well. So I'm keen to know kind of, you know, I guess what you're up to now as well, but you're now yeah. focusing on sort of tech for good investments. Is that right? And uh, can you tell me a bit more about what your interests are and about where your focus lies now and what you're excited about? Sure. I mean, when we started Shazam, we we were hoping for overnight success and it didn't work <laughs> out. You know, and 18 years later, we found ourselves, you know, middle aged and uh, effectively without a proper job. So uh, I thought that being an investor would be a good way to recycle some of those lessons mm-hmm. learned and I guess experience to uh, the next generation of entrepreneurs who have m- much more energy. And, and frankly, I felt passionate about supporting entrepreneurs who are trying to have a positive impact on mm-hmm. society in general. So what I call, you know, tech for good and particularly uh, entrepreneurs from minorities, you know, women, uh, people who may not have had uh, some of the advantages. I, I had the great luxury of going to Stanford Business School in the heart of Silicon Valley. And that really helped, you know, open doors. But that's not true for for everyone. I guess through that process, I've came across the Sustainable Development Goals, which Mm -hmm. was established by the United Nations. I think there's 193 signatories to those. And the one which really stood out for me is uh, the climate crisis, which is number 13. The problem is that I know absolutely nothing about uh, the topic. The, the, The big challenge is if I were younger and cleverer, then I should be able to figure this stuff out. But instead, I've actually hired a chief of staff who's 22, is a graduate of uh, the London School of Economics called Cormac, and he is brilliant, imaginative, hardworking, make things happen. And together, we've put together these squads, if you will, of young people who are passionate about the same topic, Mm. and which uh, has two benefits. One is uh, it allows me to trot out some of my old, you know, I guess, nuggets, which might be helpful for somebody early in their career and perhaps uh, doing something entrepreneurial in the future, but also to understand from their perspective, how do they see the world? What are the issues which they feel strongly about? What are the technologies which they're excited about? And and gives me a, a chance to learn from, from that perspective rather than going away and reading Wikipedia or studying research reports. I find it much more rewarding both ways. I'm curious, this is an impossible question, but because it did take, eight, was it 18 years, did you say, before you exited Shazam? Um, I'm just curious what might have happened had you exited after 18 months or, you know, in a much shorter time scale. I would have misspent my youth, but uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway, it's a kind of impossible alternative alternate reality but but you do seem very kind of very humble and I wonder whether that's just because it has been a bit of a roller coaster but I think that's also important and necessary and, and you're quite right there's you know it's a t- it should be a two-way street I presume with these young entrepreneurs that you're working with I'm sure you can teach them stuff but I'm sure they can teach you stuff as well so that's um a lot often people who have been successful maybe don't quite have the humility to kind of talk to people you know as equals in that way but I suspect or knowing you a little bit as I do uh, yeah I imagine that's that's a little bit different in your case well I that, that's very kind of you but the humility is enforced and and, it, and the enforcement was uh you know ha- having to build the patience of uh yeah. laboring for, for 18 years but yeah. I, I, 
too remember my, my grandfather was a big inspiration uh, to me. He was the Admiral of the Indian Navy. And one wow. of the things he said to me was, uh, when you're in the Navy, you learn to wait. You might be waiting for a boat to come and pick you up for a couple of hours, for instance. And this didn't strike me as particularly useful life advice. Uh, but I realized how valuable it is. And I force myself to be patient. And I've learned that things can take much longer than, than you would expect or hope or anticipate or, or want. But uh, if one gets there in the end, and I think that balance between the entrepreneurial energy and passion and the uh, regretful amount of gray hair accumulated makes for a, a good combination. So do you think you're good at waiting? Is that one of your skills? I tend to take an abnormally long-term perspective. Hmm. And what I mean by that is sometimes I find myself thinking decades out. I'm trying to turn this into a virtue and uh, I think it works best uh, in the rear view mirror. So I can look back and say, hey, if you hang in there long enough, then you've got some good stories to tell. I'm not making any claims about what's going to happen in, in the future, but I do believe that by trying to, as I was saying before, you know, point in the right direction with the right starting point, one can look back and construct a narrative almost, a mm. theme, which then I guess makes sense. And uh, I, I guess I've got faith in that uh, process. I don't think this is this is unique by, by any means. We're at a point now where there's going to be some dramatic impacts in terms of new technologies, in terms of the political economy, in terms of you know popular sentiment, in terms of you know the the the, the big industries of the future, and it's very exciting. Mm. Who knows how it's going to play out? I certainly don't. But I think we would look back and say, oh boy, that 2019, 2020, 2021, those years were mm. such a turning point. Yeah, no, they really were. And I feel that as well. And having said that, you referenced Al Gore. And because um, I remember seeing that mm. um, at the time. And I'm pretty sure he was saying we've got 10 years to sort this out in 2005. Mm. And uh -huh. here we are in 2021, 16 years later, where pretty much the exact same thing was said a year or two ago. Of course, we're 15 years further on. So that urgency is greater things always seem a decade out and Al Gore right. was saying that about the climate crisis and they're saying yeah. that now and I don't want to underplay the urgency that there is around mm. climate I really don't but mm. at the same time there's something about your experience of patience and playing the long game sure. I mean what, one, one of my favorite authors is Alain de Botton and I had the great privilege of meeting him um, about a year ago or so and uh, he is my age and so I've got this admiration bordering on adulation of how can he be so smart and write all these incredible books and he's mm. got this school of life i asked him a question i said okay now if your works are being studied in 500 years from now how would you encapsulate your view of the world in one sentence or less and he said well that's easy uh you know life is a little bit disappointing and so he had uh, you know i thought this was a clever question but he had a direct answer and that's really you know inspiring which is you set out to achieve something and maybe you get there and maybe you don't but you know sort of on average it always ends up being a little disappointing if we can live with that and look back and say lots of good things happened along the way then ta-da that feels like a, a satisfying life yeah. and and i think that that's plays itself to that long game and you know if one's heading in the right direction with uh, dead ends along the way as long as you've got your, your dog for company, then uh, it's all good. 
So coming back a little bit to maybe where we started or where you started, which mm-hmm. is in the sort of hotbed of innovation and Silicon mm-hmm. Valley, how can we build a world and I guess also build software, which is more optimized for humanity and resilience are the two words that spring to mind rather than efficiency and the attention economy, which has dominated a lot of the last 10, 15 years. In the position that you're in and the experience that you've had, how you can maybe inject some of that passion for some of these kind of social themes in in the next generation of entrepreneurs that you might be working with? Sure. I mean, I, I think of myself as as an entrepreneur, and that's how I tend to think in terms of I get excited about new opportunities. I love, you know, exploring the the fringe of, of, of science and and so forth. And entrepreneur generally in our culture is a, is a good word. Uh, technology used to be a good word as well, until, as you pointed out, you get some of the impact and ramifications, which, uh, you know, can, can be quite negative. And the word I've been using or uh, adopting more often recently is about ethics, uh, which can sound a bit, you know, stodgy and perhaps old-fashioned and, uh, you know, sort of preachy. But I really do think that there's a really important role uh, for ethics now and in the future. And and that's what I see in the next generation, Generation Z, for instance, which is, mm. uh, you know, it's right at the forefront, which is, is this a, a company I want to work for? Is this a brand I want to support with my money? You know, is this uh, a cause I, I, I believe in? And I'm really glad to see that rise. And uh, I both uh, embrace it, I applaud it, and I champion it as well, which is, you know, making those decisions or taking a view based on one's personal beliefs and, and, and values. And that was a big part of, you know, the camaraderie I had with my my business partners and team at, at Shazam. We believed in doing business a, a, a certain way, I guess, and uh, our shared values were, were really important. So, for instance, I believe there's going to be a generation of business models which are created now and in the future, which have ethics at the core, uh, whether it's use of data or whether it is uh, how one takes advantage or not of people's limited attention, uh, to what extent is one thinking about the wellness of one's users or, or, mm. or customers, and building that into the design of the product or the service of the company, I think is going to become higher and higher in our consciousness rather than being buried at this sort of like gut level of whatever one's values or ethics might be. I totally agree. And I really wish and hope that business is a force for good in the world. I think too often business wields huge power, uh, but mm. not sufficient responsibility. But I think that is changing and the awareness of that issue is changing. What do you make of things like the B Corp movement and things like that, which are trying to sort of merge purpose and profit as kind of mutual objectives? Is that possible? Do you not have to trade off between those two things? Yeah. What, what are your thoughts on that? So I'm a huge fan of uh, the B Corp movement. And actually, uh, for me, it really is uh, hand in hand, business as a force for good and purpose and profits going together. I don't think there's a trade off. I think quite the opposite, in fact, is that mm. uh, as uh, the, the best employees and the masters of, of customers make ethical choices, those companies with a strong purpose who are acting on it and are communicating and role modeling will uh, increase their, their profits and, and hopefully use some of that uh, wealth which is generated for, you know, for greater good over time. So the work which I'm doing now, for instance, I'm working with a, a number of students at the London School of Economics looking at innovations in technology for for renewable energy it isn't a company but already what is being surfaced is that some of the 
practices uh, might be unethical or might have damaging consequences, for instance, extractive aspects, which uh, will be part of the, uh, the new energy economy. And I said, uh, I don't mind if it's really valuable, uh, but if it's uh, not ethical or damaging, then it's not something which I want to back or, or, or invest in. This was not my statement. It came from the students directly, which is as they were doing the research and as they're uncovering opportunities, they're really mindful of the impact. And that, I think, is going to become standard in how the, the future generations of, of companies operate. Mm, I think that's right. But I think often there's unintended consequences. You know, the first order intention is very honorable and around mm-hmm. doing good, but there is often perverse or unintended consequences, second order, third order effects that yes. that we can't always anticipate in advance. It's incumbent upon us to recognize those, respond to those and do something about it as as and when we realize that. I think that's exactly right. And and to your point, one makes mistakes. You might have the best intentions and you create a negative second order effect, in which case Mm. you say, I messed up and, you know, I better change direction. I think that's part of uh, both the the privilege as well as the the penance of an innovator is when you mess those things up. Thank you, Deeraj. I really enjoyed that conversation. And I could really relate to Deeraj being in the park with his new puppy, Charlie and having random conversations and the inspiration that that brings. I also thought it was interesting about what Dero said about spotting when you're in the right place at the right time, catching that wave, or possibly knowing when you're at a dead end and needing to change tack. I also really liked what he said, inspired by his grandfather, about the importance of patience and taking the long view, which obviously Dheeraj has experienced with the long journey he had at Shazam. And I'm really, really pleased that he's channeling now the opportunity to be more activist in changing the world whilst sharing what it takes to be an innovator and having the patience and penance of trying and failing and trying again. So please do check out the links to find out more about Diraj in the show description. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community that seeks to solve hard problems of sustainability, health and inclusion. We're supported by our members and patrons, so I'd like to welcome... Christina Nizel, Joshua Baker, Sinan Laji, Will Rolfe, and Sam Root. Thank you and welcome to all of you. If you want to find out more about Liminal or to join our community, please visit www.weareliminal.co forward slash community. And like every other podcast out there, we'd really love it if you could like and subscribe to this podcast because that really helps us get out to new people. Until next time, please keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye.